Well, welcome, um, as I say, to um, our new series in Genesis. And as with any new book, um, I am uh, very excited uh, to be starting it um, um, with you. Over these next few months, leading right up until Easter, we're going to be looking at chapters 12 to 25 of Genesis. That's the middle section of this first book in the Bible, the book of history written by Moses as he builds together the history and the law of God's people. And here he is detailing the start of the world the creation of mankind, and as we will be spending a lot of time in this term, the beginning of the people of God. And as we see God's people, uh, God's nation, quite literally being born over these few chapters, so we also see the beginning of God's revelation to us as he lays down the foundation of who he really is. For in Genesis, as would be obvious, we get the groundwork of the God of the Bible as he begins to display his character to us as readers for the very first time. And as we jump into chapter 12, um, we see that this chapter is one of the big turning points in the history of the world. And that's no exaggeration. We know that to be true because we literally have been given a history of the world right from chapter 1 where creation happens up until this point. And the history up until this point in Genesis 12 has been broadly horrific. By the first opening two chapters of Genesis, which detail God's incredible creation and his love for humankind as he makes man and woman in his image, as he builds them a paradise garden in perfection, only three chapters later, we see that mankind rejects God, rejects his goodness, his care, Mankind defies him by taking matters into their own hands. And from that point on, quite literally, all hell breaks loose. From chapters 3 to 11, there is, bar a few hints of promise, only cursing and death and devastation. Until chapter 12, where the course of human history suddenly and profoundly changes forever. And that brings us to our second passage this morning from Galatians, for for what we read there perfectly sums up the reasons as to why we are looking at Genesis today and why we can, why it's actually in our Bibles, why it's important for us to read. For Galatians 3 verse 8 tells us that the scriptures, foreseeing what was going to happen in and through Jesus in the future for the whole of the world, for, 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 for the redemption of the Gentiles, preached the gospel to Abraham. And that, in a nutshell, is very much the aim of our series, if you like, that the same gospel which we now enjoy today is the same gospel introduced to Abraham. And sitting here this morning, we are almost as far beyond Jesus as Abraham here in Genesis is before Jesus. We're 2,000 years or so later than Christ. Abraham is about 2,000 years before Christ was born. And yet here in Genesis, all those 4,000 years ago, we see the same good news of Jesus being preached. So even though we're in Old Testament territory with strange names, some of them are really strange, in a strange history, at a strange time, with strange countries and a strange culture, we will hear nothing different over this term than the same gospel, the same familiar gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we know and love and have been affected by today. For it is the same gospel that is preached through the promises of God to an unknown pagan man named Abraham, or, or <laughs> Abram, 
Indeed, it is because of what God does with and in and through Abraham that we have the gospel of Jesus at all. As we see through his line, God bringing dramatic fulfillment to astonishing gospel promises, ultimately filled in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Now, why are we looking at at this? Well, you see, as we delve into this remarkable series in Genesis, in this new year of all new years, as we, we see all the structures and promises and hopes and realities of the Lord Jesus bound up in a God who is deeply faithful and who reinforces our trust and our faith and our daily walk with the Savior of the world, who has maintained his salvation promises through every age of human history without wavering once. Genesis is of deep encouragement to us. And as we fall into this part of God's word, we see a figure of unrelenting faithfulness and surety that that we so desperately need to be reminded of every single day, not least in this unshakable and, and untrustworthy world that we find ourselves in, in this year of all years, 2021, which seems to already be more shaken and unsteady than the last one. Not even six days into a year where scenes of an armed insurrection in the heart of the world's most defiant and and seemingly stable democracy shook the world. As we head into a year where the pandemic and and demagogues seem to reign as king, where all over the world, governments, public bodies, long established systems are creaking and failing, not able to keep their promises. It is absolutely necessary and deeply wonderful and reassuring, both to those of us who are Christians this morning, And to those of you who who aren't and are maybe exploring Christianity, that there is a steadfast, true, faithful, just God whose promises are not only very, very good, but are defiantly and eternally kept. And that have been through years much darker than we are experiencing today. And that introduction brings us nicely to the question that we're going to frame our entire series with. And here is the question. Can we trust God to keep his promises? Can we trust God to keep his promises? And if you think about it, that question has a double meaning, doesn't it? It could mean, is God a trustworthy God? In that, is he worthy of our trust? When God makes promises, is it appropriate that we believe what he says? But it can also be a question of us. Are we the kind of people who trust God? In other words, can we trust him? Do we trust this trustworthy God? Can we and do we summon up the trust in ourselves that we ought to have in this God who, as we will see, proves to be deeply faithful? In other words, is God to be trusted? Is he a trustworthy God? And if so, do we trust him? with our lives as Christians? Is God faithful and are we living faithfully to him? And both those things are going to run side by side every single week in this series as we see how God keeps his promises and as we see Abraham living in relationship to those promises. Because the verdict of biblical history as we begin this series, inspired by the Spirit, is that God is trustworthy. As Jesus, the man from the line of Abraham who saves the world, he he does come as promised. 
but also that Abraham does believe and is faithful to this promise-keeping God. And that's what our Galatians reading shows us. Abraham is called the man of faith in the New Testament. He is the one who is held up more than anyone else in the Bible as a model for us as to what it means to trust in God in a shaken world and to follow him faithfully. Abraham is is there in Galatians. We've just read that. He also has a lot of Romans 4 talking about him as an example of trusting in God. He takes the center stage and, and, and all the space in Hebrews 11, that great chapter on the heroes of faith. Abraham is the hero of heroes of living by faith and trusting in God. He is the definitive example that the Bible unashamedly promotes that we should emulate. So this book is about God's trustworthiness and the promises he made and the need that we have to trust in them following Abraham as our model. And that is what we have in store for us this term. In the middle of a global pandemic, in a time when we are again isolated, separated, exhausted, ill, tired. In a world where we are geopolitically on edge all the time, is God to be trusted? And if he is... Do we really trust him or do we go to someone else? Well, with that in mind, please uh, turn back to Genesis chapter 12 as we uh, dive right in. And our first point of only two this morning is that God promises to bless the whole world through one man by grace. Genesis 12, 1 to 2. Let me just read that again for us. Now, the Lord said to Abram, that that is Abraham. Um, he was, he's going to have his name changed later. Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to use the word Abraham more than Abram because it comes more naturally to me. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So far, so very good. But so far, so very remote. Here is the character that perhaps we've never heard before, some of us. Or we have, we've not heard this particular name before, this Abram person. And God is promising him nice, but odd promises that seem to have little to do with us today. God promises him a nice new home. That's great. Good for him. But what do I care about that? This man is also to be given lots of children. He's going to have a big family that will become a nation. Terrific. But again, so what? That that nation is the Jewish nation. Abraham will be the father of of the Jews. That's a very different nation to us politically, um, socially, culturally, geographically. I don't think many of us can claim physical Jewish heritage. Again, it doesn't really affect us. But if you keep reading, you discover that, in fact, this is the promise that will affect everyone. We see that in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, this is on one hand a very specific promise to a single man that God has singled out for dealings with him and his family, as we'll see. And yet on the other hand, it is a global and universal promise, a promise that is to be extended to all the families on earth, every single tribe, nation, and tongue, a promise that will ultimately include us as it comes through the Lord Jesus as it is preached to every single nation. God promises to bless the whole world through one man. And he does so by grace. For why is this good news for us? Why is this gospel news for us, if you like, today? 
Well, remember the backstory of Genesis that we touched on earlier. God has made this wonderful, beautiful world, but mankind, uh, figureheaded by Adam and Eve, left it devastated, uh, spoilt, and ruined, and undone. And in Genesis 3, we see that God banishes humanity from perfection with a curse. God says this. He says, cursed be the ground because of you. And yet here, just a few chapters later, the God who has pronounced a curse now promises a blessing. Now, the curse was deserved, the way we had treated God was appalling. We'll be looking at that a lot more when we do hit Genesis 1 to 11. That's an important part of Scripture. I need to do a lot more work on that um, um, as we get that ready. But the way we distrusted and sullied God's proven good word, well, it unraveled everything. The curse was fully deserved. But the blessing, well, it comes out of nowhere, and it is not deserved. It is entirely by grace, like, like, like a, a thunderbolt through scripture, chapter 12, verse 1 happens. God speaks and he promises blessing. It is totally undeserved. It is almost totally unexpected. And if you read chapters 1 to 11, you'll see that that's true. In fact, the summary of chapters 1 to 11 in Genesis can be found in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, the darkest two verses, I think, in the whole of scripture. Let me just read them for you. The Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was very great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of man was only evil continually all the time. And the Lord was sorry that he had ever made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The promise of blessing was not in any way deserved. There was nothing found in mankind that warranted God to bless us. But for some reason, God singles out Abraham, this pagan man, we assume, and says to him, I will bless you. And I promise I will bless you. And I promise I will bless the whole world in the same way through you by nothing that you have done. Because Abraham hasn't done anything to warrant this blessing, has he? We know nothing about him. We know who his father is, who he married, where he lived. That's all we know. Yet God gives his promise to him regardless. It's not even as if he's less sinful or less bad than anyone else. We just don't know. There's nothing to indicate here that Abraham is actually better than anyone else who reviled God at that time. God blesses Abraham just because, as we will see, it is in God's character to bless in an undeserved and gracious way. And not just to bless Abraham, but to bless the world through him, through God's Son, the fulfillment of all these promises. And that brings us on to another question. How? How does that work? How do the promises given to Abraham that are going to bless him affect us and bless us today in Christ? What? is going on with these promises. Well, that brings us nicely onto what these promises actually are and why they are so important to Abraham then and to us now. For it is really important for us to know what is actually being said. What are the actual promises that God makes as we assess God's faithfulness in knowing whether it is that we can trust him or not? But before we get there, there's a very important point to make. And I really do want to make this as we start this series. This is very important. I had a friend um, 
down south. Uh, she had a child, and she told me once about a time when her daughter came running upstairs to her in bed at silly o'clock in the morning and shouted at the top of her voice, Mummy, God doesn't exist, with tears flowing down her cheeks. Utterly shocked at this, my friend, uh, who's obviously a Christian, asked why she'd come to that firmly held conclusion, and her daughter responded with, I dropped my bear down the back of my bed, and he is lost forever. So God doesn't exist. Why would he allow that to happen if he exists? Cue lots of tears. How can there be a good God in a world where teddies are irretrievably lost behind beds? It's funny, but it's also very helpful. Because we can make the same mistake as adults and as Christians, can't we? By wrongly judging God by the things that he hasn't actually promised us. Not losing a teddy, but maybe in the losing of our jobs or of our health, losing a close family friend or, or, or family member to, to, to death. We might look on this pandemic and see the way it has upended our lives and think, well, I don't see a good or faithful God. We look at all those things and we might say, well, God doesn't exist or God isn't good to me. For some of you who maybe aren't Christians watching this this morning, maybe that is your main objection to Christianity because God isn't giving me the job I wanted or the financial security I wanted or the relationship I wanted or the child I wanted. Therefore, a good faithful God just doesn't exist. I don't want to know him. And it's easy to think that way even as Christians when we're not clear on exactly what it is God has promised us and what he has said he will do. God is faithful. That means he keeps his promises. God is faithful does not mean that he gives us what we want or what we think we want. God is faithful means he will always do the things that he has promised, but he hasn't promised that Christians will always be healthy, for example or have good and stable jobs, or not lose people that we care about, or not be totally brought low by a global pandemic. God promises Abraham here some some amazing things, but he doesn't promise that it's going to be easy reaching those promises. You see, when a Christian suffers, the Bible says, well, that's normal. This is what Jesus says will be the normal expectation of what every Christian will face. God is faithful, but we have to be clear on what it is God said he will do and hold on to that. Test him by the promises he's made, says the Bible, not by the promises that we attribute to him. So if you expect this God to make you wealthy or healthy or important or give you career success or even keep you safe from harm, or if you think Genesis is going to say that, well, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And there are many churches that will attribute those promises to God on your behalf. Well, let me tell you that that the God of the Bible doesn't promise you that. You are not going to hear that. That is why constantly reading the Bible and being in community together is is so important as Christians. In the muck and sometimes horror of everyday life, we have to constantly be reminded of what God's promises actually are to us and have them continually being affirmed as those same promises um, um, occur for us between us in relationship. Or else we'll, we'll, we'll break apart. So with that in mind, what does God actually promise? Well, that brings us to our second point this morning, for God's promises are unbelievably good. God's promises are unbelievably good. 
And again, I, I use the word unbelievably deliberately here. I, I use unbelievably a bit too much, but I use it deliberately here. And it too can be used in two ways, in the superlative sense of God's promises are incredibly good. They're very, very good. They're amazing and wonderfully good for me. But also that they are unbelievable, incredible, if you like, as in difficult to believe that they could ever actually happen. Now, what makes them so? Well, here in Genesis 12, God promises to bless Abraham in three ways, doesn't he? And we're going to see these three promises overlaid over the whole course of this series together. And here they are. First, God promises that Abraham will live in Canaan, in the promised land. Abraham's family were already on their way there. We read that in chapter 11, verse 31, but they stop in Haran and they settle there. But God says, no, 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 Abraham, keep going, get to Canaan. Chapter 12, verse 7, that, he says, is the land that I'm going to give you. That's the first promise, that the promised land, the land that will later be known, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Israel, as it will be called. The second promise is that Abraham will have buckets of children, many, many descendants. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Later, God will say you'll have as many descendants as the sand on the seashore and as many as the stars in the sky. God promises Abraham to a place to live and many, many people to live in that place. The third promise is, of course, the blessing itself, the promise that sort of ties these other two promises together. And again, in two ways will this blessing come about. This land, this people will be to Abraham a personal blessing as he trusts in God, as any child and home would be to a person. But secondly, as we've been seeing, and more importantly, is the truth that out of this land and out of this people, there will come some form of blessing that will go far beyond that land and that people and will bless the entire world. And so having set out his stall, God needs to now defend his promises. And that's what the whole of the next few chapters we'll be looking at over this term will detail, exploring the promise of land to live in and the people who will live there and how it will all be a blessing to the entire earth. And this is where we go back to the truth that these promises are unbelievably good. For right from the start, it is not obvious, is it, how these promises are going to come about. They are unbelievable, as in almost impossible to, to believe, because there are major obstacles to both of those two main promises coming true, aren't they? And we read them in our passage. Obstacle one, you're living Canaan, Abraham, but one problem. Another people group live there at the moment. The Canaanites are there. You see that in verse 6 of chapter 12. At that time, the, the Canaanites lived in the land. As we'll see as we go through Genesis, as you go through the whole of the Old Testament, this is the first sign of trouble for this new people. The Canaanites will be the thorn in Abraham's side. They are a ruthless people, a wicked people, and a people that need to be conquered. They will be the cause of all war and trouble for Abraham and his nation. In other words... It's really not going to be very easy to get hold of this land that has been promised to Abraham. That's the first obstacle, but the second is an absolute snorter. Abraham will father an almighty nation, but again, there is a major problem. Not just a hint of trouble, there's just a major problem with this. Even before we get to the Abraham narrative, at the back end of chapter 11 in the helpful genealogy, you'll notice almost as an aside, the narrator's comment in, in, in verse 30, Sarai, Abraham's wife, 
She was barren. She had no child. Before we even get to the promises of God, that the point is made, oh, incidentally, Abram, as a part of this line that we've been following, well, his can't continue because Sarai, his wife, has no children. She's barren. The promises of God are unbelievable. His promises, he promises a family line to a person who cannot have a family line and a land that is already heavily occupied by a fierce warrior-like people. These promises are not just difficult, they are impossible. Promises that already have no hope, seemingly, of coming true. And so now as we step back a little bit and and go back to our original question at the top of our talk, we've got something against God by which we can now test his character, don't we? And what a test of character. It's not even that God puts up too easy things to accomplish, not not wanting to overpromise as we might. No, 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 he, he plays his whole hand. Here are two impossible things. The test is, will God do the impossible things that he says he will do? He is raising the stakes as he puts himself up for defense. And so back to our question, do we trust God? Is God a trustworthy God? Can he be trusted? Will Abraham end up in the promised land? Will Baron Sarah and old man Abraham end up fathering a nation? Will God do the things that he promises to do? That seem almost unbelievable. They have zero sign of ever happening. So the first part of our opening question, can we trust God? Is he trustworthy? And we'll see that as we come through over the course of this series. But as we follow God and test his faithfulness through these chapters, so we turn to the other way our opening question is asked. Can we find it in ourselves to trust this God? Can God be trusted by us as humans? And so as we follow God, seeing if he is faithful, so we follow Abraham to see if he is faithful to God or not. The man who the Bible stakes its reputation on as being the paradigm of, for humanity, uh, proving that we can trust God, well, will Abraham, our example, actually do that? And to help us with this, Genesis takes us through a character study for the rest of these chapters on this man, Abraham. And we see that he does trust God, but helpfully, he really struggles to. And this is where we get to the heart of our series for this term. For Abraham, as we follow him closely, proves to be a deeply encouraging example for us. I don't know if you know this, but there are actually only a few characters in the Bible that we are actively allowed to follow as examples. There are dozens and dozens of characters in the Bible, but they're not held up as examples that they're used as a way to show us our relationship with God. But there are only a few where the Bible actually says, copy this person and do what it is they do. The Apostle Paul is one of them, who in Corinthians says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The prophet Elijah is another one in James. Elijah is us, says James. We should pray like Elijah. And Abraham is supremely that. He is the model of faith and trust and obedience to live like. And we're grateful to God that the models that he chooses for us in the Bible to follow are ones that are such a mess and so ambiguous. And Abraham most especially fits that bill. 
He does believe God, as we'll see, but it's a real mess. He bumbles along. He, he muddles through. He gets it right. He gets it wrong. And often he'll swing wildly between the two. And he is the model that we are to follow. And that is incredibly encouraging and very comforting. Imagine he was a superstar Christian. Like the kind of Christians that you sometimes read about in Christian biographies. I'm not knocking Christian biographies. Sometimes they're very helpful. But sometimes they can be quite unhelpful, depending on how you're feeling. Where you have a story in front of you of a person who's got everything right, seemingly. Every thought process, every decision they've made, every friendship they've had, every struggle they face. Even their sins seems to be almost trite, sort of noble, well-intentioned sins. I think sometimes they can be really unhelpful and very discouraging. How can I live like that? I've never lived like that, you might say. I'm a rubbish Christian in the face of this person. Am I a Christian at all? The way this book is written, it seems as if it's normal to live this supercharged spiritual way. Well, thankfully, that's not the case at all with the models that God puts in the Bible for us to follow. They're all highly flawed and none more so than Abraham himself, the hero of the faith. I read his story, and it challenges me because he's a model. He does really hard things that I have to do. He's a model, but he's also a muddle. Someone who regularly and fitfully gets things wrong, struggling on his way to right and faithful decisions. Uh, so much so, at some point you think, is the promise actually going to continue through Abraham at this point? And yet he is described as the man of the faith. In fact, Romans 4 says that Abraham did not waver in his trust. And we're going to read this and you think, really? As you read this story? Isn't it encouraging that God's verdict on this frail and sometimes failed man is that he is wholly faithful? That he got it right? The man of faith is a mess with significant issues, but he is faithful by the verdict of God. Isn't it of incredible encouragement to us as we look at this series, as we look at Genesis, as we look at Abraham, that attempting to be like Abraham in our following Jesus can be fitful, sinful, and we're, we're frail in that. At points, we will be deeply distrusting. And the verdict of us in Christ that is written over us is faithful servant you did not waver. And it is looking at Abraham and his faithfulness that brings us back into our passage today as we come in on the home straight this morning. Can Abraham trust God? Well, on the one hand, yes. Look at the beginning of chapter 12. You'll notice an instruction followed by the promises that we've looked at. And you'll notice the time lag between the instruction and the promises. The instruction is now, go, and the promises are, are, are much later. And that's what makes trusting in God difficult, isn't it? That time lag. Verse 1, go now, God tells Abraham. That instruction is for the immediate present. Go leave everything simply because I tell you to go. Go to a land that you don't know, to a future that you can't see. And when you do, says God, well, we then hear two verses of I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Go now to the land I will show you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do something now because of what I say I will do in the future. 
And there is the challenge of faith for us as Christians. The Bible defines faith as trusting in something that we cannot yet see, taking God's words for it as he proves himself daily about something that is yet hidden. That is what God is asking Abraham to do. Trust me, Abraham. Take it on my character, Abraham. Trust me all the more as you see me helping you and fulfilling these promises in small ways in your life. Trust me and go. And Abraham does. Verse 4. Abraham went as the Lord had told him at the age of 75 when change isn't really very easy at all. Abraham obeyed. He trusted God. And verse 5, Abraham took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, they set out to go to the land of Canaan. But suddenly they hit their first obstacle, don't they? Verse 6. And they came to the land. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And for the first of many times in Genesis, as, as, as Abraham comes up to major obstacles, God encourages Abraham to keep going. Verse 7, keep going, Abraham. Don't worry about the Canaanites. To you, to your offspring, I will give this land. I, I promise that promise again. Keep going, Abraham. Keep trusting. You've hit an obstacle, but I'm going to give you this land, even though the Canaanites are in it. And Abraham does trust. He builds an altar. He dedicates it to the Lord. He moves to the hill country. He pitches his tent. He settles temporarily. And importantly, verse 8, he calls on the name of the Lord. He's hit a wobble, but he keeps going and he seeks God in prayer. He trusts him. But then he hits a much bigger wobble, doesn't he? One that I am sure poor Sarah was distinctly unimpressed with. And Abraham's response to this one is a lot different. At the end of chapter 12, Abraham really falls off the faithful wagon. There's a famine. Abraham panics. And without so much as a word of prayer to God, he flees with his wife into Egypt. He, he enters Egypt and the panic in Abraham increases as he realizes that Sarah is both his greatest threat and his greatest asset. You're very attractive, my dear, he says to her. Someone's bound to notice you. They're going to want you. They're going to get rid of me. Let's turn this into our advantage. Say you are my sister. Suddenly you're not a threat, and I'll pawn you off to make sure that we're safe. I, it's really quite astonishing. It's a terrible way to treat his wife. I'll allow other men to have you, and I'll remain as a third party so that I am safe. But it's also a terrible way to treat God. It shows an astonishing depth of distrust in God. It's expressed in taking matters very much into his, his own hands. And as we apply this to ourselves this morning, is that not exactly what we are tempted to do with our lives on a daily basis when it comes to God's promises in difficult times? Like Abraham does here in the really difficult moments of life or even in the good moments of life, are we ever prepared to choose ungodly means as a way to get to God's end? For time and time again in Genesis, that is how faithlessness is displayed and expressed. Not necessarily even turning away from God's promises per se, but more trying to achieve them outside of the will of God. Trying to make those promises true through your own work, your own power, taking matters into your own hand. Saying, as it were, those promises are great, God, but I'll make them true for me. Let, let me have a good work at them. I don't simply trust you to get me there. 
Now, I'm not talking about planning or making good decisions in regards to God's promises. I'm not going down the route that some Christian groups would hold, whereby you don't need to take any medicine, for example, because God's promises health and care for you. If he really wanted you well, he'd heal you himself. That, that's ridiculously anti-biblical. That's not what I'm talking about. What's going on here is taking ungodly means and, and covering them under the veneer of God's promises. Here are a few examples, one that I struggle with. I need to be selfish for my money to secure God's future for me and my family, because no one else is going to do that for me. That's an example that challenges me, hoarding what I have. God's promises promises me a future safe in him. That's great. But I need to make sure I get there myself, so I'm going to hoard all my possessions. That surely is the way that God's going to do this, at all costs, to, to protect that future. Become incredibly greedy. I'm not talking about prudence or financial care or saving for the future. Those are all good things. I'm talking about rampant selfishness, going further than prudence. We may cover ourselves with the idea that, well, God has blessed me with my money. I need to hold on to this. This is God's blessing to me. I'm going to store up my future. Or in another tact, I must make it known to everyone around me that I did this creditable good thing rather than trust God that he's seen it and that he'll help me and bless me. You know, when you do something that you, you need everyone to notice and you make sure they know, and quite often you try to sort of nonchalantly slip it out and it's all a bit awkward and everyone is all very obvious. You hate it when others do it to you, you do it to them. The idea of self-advancement, the ugliness of pride, you do it in case God hasn't noticed, someone needs to give me credit. I've been promised that I'm going to be blessed through the things, the good things that I do. I want people to know that. Where's my blessing? Especially for those of us who are leaders and in ministry. Those are just two examples that I manifestly struggle with. There are thousands more. But do you see, do we follow ungodly means to get to the end, to get our good future promised for us? Or do we trust God, especially in the really difficult times when all these things seem to be lost, that he really will get us to his promises himself? And that is what is going on with Abraham. Right at the end of his opening story of the rest of redemption history, Abraham hits only the second tough point and he takes matters into his own own hands in a deeply ungodly way. We're only on the first chapter. As much as that is a warning to us, it is deeply reassuring, reassuring for us. It is wonderful that God doesn't desert Abraham. He remains faithful to Abraham. He keeps blessing him. God protects him. Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh with great plagues because of Sarai. Pharaoh demands the truth. Abraham and Sarah are set free with an astonishing amount of wealth. Given safe passage, they're protected. You see, this is where we turn the lens back onto the character of God. He is still the God of supreme grace, and he is still a God of promise. The character of God's promise keeping isn't only when it's deserved or earned. It's not, oh, Abraham, you're a really faithful guy. You were great today. I'm going to give you my promises. I'll be faithful to you in return. Not at all. It's very much, Abraham, you're really wobbling. You're sinning. You're taking matters into your own hand. You need to trust me. You're putting yourself in danger. Trust me that I've got this. My promises still stand. I'm a faithful God. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to save you from this. You can trust me, Abraham. And you're going to learn to trust me, Abraham. And there'll be more wobbles. But I'm never going to waver in my promise keeping to you. That's our opening question again. Can we trust God to keep his promises? 
After this episode, Abraham can trust God more. He, he saved him from Pharaoh. Abraham can point to this and go, yes, God, God can be trusted. He delivered me from my own stupidity and selfishness. But one of us, as we close, one of us, one of the promises given to us in this manner, one of the promises that are actually trusting, that we are trusting in for us today as we look at Abraham and these promises given to him. How, as we have said, do these specific promises bless us as they are told that, we, that they will? How can we trust God through these specific promises of land and family in the way that Abraham does? For it can't be that God is telling us to go to Haran or Canaan or up sticks and leave for modern day Israel. And neither is he promising his people, us, that we'll have lots of children miraculously. For many people, that is very sad. And one that needs to be really careful of as we deal with these promises. What is the promise of Abraham that comes through to us? How is that manifested in the promise of Jesus Christ? Well, the New Testament makes it clear, doesn't it? That the promise of a place to live with God forever is ours. Not in the Middle East, but in the new heaven and the new earth. There he will bless us in his final and perfect promised land, the new Israel, the new Jerusalem. And it is a promise of being part of a huge multitude of many people, uh, an almighty global family, of which we become a part when we come to Jesus, made up of every tribe, nation, and tongue, seen partially now in the global church, but, but seen fully in the future when we reside with Christ himself, with his people, for an eternity. You see, as much as we trust God every single day, we are trusting in these exact promises that he will bring us home to a family and that he will bring us home to his place of rule and blessing. And all of this is fulfilled, isn't it, in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, as he dies for this new nation, bringing many repentant children to glory, as he preaches the gospel given to Abraham, where people are allowed to, by faith, put their trust in the Savior, Son of God, for nothing that they have done, and be engrafted into the family line and blessings of Abraham, becoming, through Jesus' resurrection, a family at one with Christ himself, and given an unmistakable home, an unshakable home, for eternity beyond death. These promises, as we'll see over the course of this term, of land and family given to Abraham are our promises today. But will we, Redeemer, trust God that he will make them true for us as we struggle and live through these days together in dependence and in faith in him? Well, let me pray for us as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much for uh, these wonderful promises that you give uh, to Abraham. Thank you that we see these promises come to fruition in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can see that it is um, that you are a trustworthy God, a God who keeps uh, your promises and a God who loves us and protects us, a God who, who helps us by nothing that we have done, a God who promises unbelievable promises for us through grace. Heavenly Father, God, I pray very much as we go through these days together, as we encourage each other in the Lord as a church family over these weeks and months, over this winter, into this spring. Father God, we very much pray that we be teaching to each other the promises of God that are held for us in Christ, that we won't always see until we meet him in glory. 
May it be that this keeps us persevering in faith and loving the Lord Jesus and, and, and battling um, ungodliness and sin. And when we're stumbling, coming back to the, God, the promises of God in repentance and in faith, picking ourselves up in the Lord Jesus Christ and moving on with him again. Father God, thank you so much for the gospel that was preached to Abraham. Thank you that it is the same gospel that is preached to us today. May we be unashamed of it. May we preach it to ourselves and to others, we pray in your mighty name. Amen.